Warning, the following message may be offensive to some audiences. These audiences may include, but are not limited to, professing Christians who never read their Bible, sissies, sodomites, men with man buns, those who approve of men with man buns, man bun enablers, white knights for men with man buns, homemakers who have finished Netflix but don't know how to meal plan, and people who refer to their pets as fur babies. Viewer discretion is advised. People are tired of hearing nothing but doom and despair on the radio. The message of Christianity is that salvation is found in Christ alone, and any who reject Christ, therefore, forfeit any hope of salvation, any hope of heaven. The issue is that humanity is in sin, and the wrath of Almighty God is hanging over our heads. They will hear his words, they will not act upon them, and when the floods of divine judgment, when the fires of wrath come, they will be consumed and they will perish. God wrapped himself in flesh, condescended, and became a man, died on the cross for sin, was resurrected on the third day, has ascended to the right hand of the Father, where he sits now to make intercession for us. Jesus is saying there is a group of people who will hear his words, they will act upon them, and when the floods of divine judgment come in that final day, their house will stand. Welcome to Bible Bash, where we aim to equip the saints for the works of ministry by answering the questions you're not allowed to ask. We're your hosts, Harrison Kerrig and Pastor Tim Mullet, and today we're joined by special guest John Harris, who will help us to answer the age-old question, should old white males be forced to financially subsidize black fornication? Now, before we dive into the conversation on this episode, like I said, we've got John Harris joining us to uh, help us... Uh, just talk about CRT. What what is CRT? What does it look like, and and how can we? How should we approach it uh, in a very practical way, and, and ways that really do affect our everyday life in one way or another? So before we get into all that, though, John, why don't you just uh, take a moment and and introduce yourself to everyone? Tell them a little bit about who you are. Yeah, well, I appreciate it, Harrison and Tim. Um, I and there's a lot of directions I could go with this, I guess. Um, the, thing that you're having me on for and probably what most people on YouTube would know me by is my podcast conversations that matter. And, uh, I talk about mostly social justice related issues that affect evangelicalism. I've written a few books on the topic and, um, I speak sometimes on the topic as well. There's a number of other endeavors I'm involved in, but, um, but that's probably, that's more the, the wheelhouse that you're uh, in and that's what we're talking about today. People can go to uh, worldviewconversation.com if they want to see more uh, about that. And uh, yeah, so if you want me to expand on any of that, I'm more than happy to. That's good. Well, well I know that we're excited to have you on and uh, eager to pick your brain about some of these issues uh, in general. Uh, I know that, you know, as you look around the evangelical world today, especially you know, some of the organizations that I think most people used to trust, at least, you know, Five years ago, ten years ago, uh, you may we, we may have uh, seen some signs of you know negative drift as far as that's concerned. But a lot of these organizations seem to be uh, relentlessly uh, pushing socialism down our throats, and it may not be that uh, they're precisely calling it that, but that's uh, exactly what they're doing. Uh, you know, I'm reminded of David Platt's uh, infamous T for G speech uh, that I was actually there in attendance when he made. Uh, where he basically used uh, Amos as an example of, you know, systemic racism and uh, 
put forward, you know, uh, all those statistics about uh, social and economic uh, disparities and put them forward as ipso facto evidence of uh, essentially uh, white supremacy and injustice. Um, but, you know, as you think about the, the abortion conversation that's going on right now, uh, you have a lot of uh, big name evangelical elites essentially who are advocating for a whole life, you know, approach to abortion and uh, you know, I think many people are aware that, that essentially what they're talking about is they're talking about socialism. But you know, as you think about these disparities that are put forward as evidence of racism in of themselves, it seems that they uh, do not account for you know some you know socioeconomic uh, and even moral factors that that might uh, also be evidence of uh, why these disparities actually exist. And so I'm thinking in particular of a 2015 uh, study, which essentially says that, you know, 70, uh, 77% of non-immigrant black births uh, in the United States were the result of fornication. And then, you know, if you think about uh, you know, white uh, fornication uh, rates in our country, it's putting them at about 30%. And so, you know, obviously these things uh, factor into these broader discussions of systemic injustice. And so we wanted to put the question to you forcefully in a way that is uh, speaking to moral categories. And because old white men are essentially the villains of every story uh, today, uh, we wanted to ask you, John, uh, should old white men be forced to financially subsidize black fornication? What do you think? I don't think we should subsidize any fornication, <laughs> black or otherwise. Yeah, uh, whoever's doing it. Um, yeah, I mean, I think a way to rephrase the question is, uh, should we have a system set up that rewards people for having babies out of wedlock? And um, I think the Great Society has largely been a failure. It hasn't actually solved the problems it was supposed to solve, and it's, if anything, exacerbated um, issues, uh, the out of wedlock births are growing in every population just about that I'm aware of. Um, but it's devastating the black community in urban areas, especially, and it's, it's just sad. So yeah, that's the short answer. Short answer is no. Yeah. yeah. I mean, but then like these, you know, the, the broader question though, is that these disparities are being put forward, um, as just evidence in of themselves of systemic oppression and adjust, uh, injustice. And, you know, what that amounts to is that we're essentially being told that we need to somehow fix the disparities. Like it must be that, um, you know, if those disparities exist, it must be because they're, ra- they're the result of racism and no moral factors like that are being considered. And so what, what is your response to uh, that broader question? You know, is every economic social disparity that you see, is that, in of itself, evidence of racism. Why or why not? And you know, how does that uh, you know relate to some of the broader uh, historical injustices that have actually happened in our society? So I think when, when you're dealing with social justice activists, you're dealing with people who have an ideology where very simple precepts, simple explanations are uh, the they have the explanatory power to make sense of everything. They're, they're really totalizing explanations. So if there's any kind of disparity, uh, then it becomes an issue of racism somehow, if it's affecting uh, a minority community. Um, so we haven't just seen this in black community. We've seen this with uh, the 
Asians being used, stop Asian hate, right? If there was a spa shooting, then it must be the result of racism, but it, it can't just be an individual's racism. It's uh, the racism of an entire group of people, namely uh, white males. And so um, it's, it's very simplistic. It's kind of childish, to be honest, but our society has become very childish, unfortunately. And uh, we, it's a very easy uh, explanation to give someone uh, because you can just invoke it for anything. Uh, and in reality, and as someone who uh, studies history, you're going to find that there's a lot of, um, there's, there's multiple factors in just about every state of affairs that contributes to it. And so, um, so is it possible that racism could contribute to, to, to things today? Yeah, sure. I'm, I'm sure that there, that that's a possibility. I would, I would, I wouldn't really take much off the table. I mean, there's a lot of things that could be possibilities. Um, but does that uh, explain everything that's happening? No, uh, it, it, it can't explain everything that happens. And I think there's some obvious responses to this, but um, one of the things I think that is telling um, is when you compare, let's say, take one example of a disparity, let's take, um, oh, I don't know, um, you know, access to healthcare. Well, there's not a lot of access to healthcare in Appalachia where it's primarily white people, right? That's not a result of racism though. So how come it is, it's a result of racism if it's in um, a community that doesn't happen to be white? Or what about police shootings? Um, most, uh, there's actually more uh, police shootings, uh, lethal police shootings of white people, but we don't think that that's because of racism. No one invokes that. Well, it must be racism that, that this is happening. Uh, the incarceration rate, uh, we find that um, actually, if you compare crime, so if you take out not just the the uh, percentage of a community of, of a particular group that's in that's incarcerated, but you actually take it into account the percentage of people in that group that have been convicted of a crime, and then you crunch the incarceration rate numbers. You find that actually, if anything, white people are um, overrepresented. You know, so it, it I think with a little bit of um, just fair questions, but also really politically incorrect questions to ask, but the really basic questions, a lot of these narratives just start unraveling. And, and so, um, so, so I think there's probably a, a multiple factors that lead to uh, what's happening out there right now in many of the disparities, but um, certainly moral issues are, would be at the top of the list, I think, especially for a Christian who understands the nature of man if you are going to have a society that's primarily built off of fatherless households, then you're not going to be raising responsible children with good role models. They're going to grow up in an environment in which they'll find substitutions for a family and a gang. And, uh, you know, and, and these things of course are heavy contributors and the, the retort is often that, well, that's just because of racism, racism in the past. Well, it, I mean, how far back do you want to go? I mean, slavery, when, is it the end of slavery? Because those problems were not as bad uh, in, let's say, the 1920s as they are now. The crime rate in the 1920s was, uh, for, for Black people, was around 20% or so. So it's, it, it's, it was much lower. What changed to make it worse, even as we're getting farther and farther away from slavery? Uh, it seems like the farther we go, but we, we get from slavery, the higher the out of wedlock birth rate. That doesn't seem to, to, to add up. 
but that's it's a fairy tale almost it's a story that they tell uh to try to shift the blame and um and ultimately i think biblically as christians we would have to say uh that the primary blame is going to end up with the people who have committed sin it's it's and i'm not saying systemically as a group i'm saying individuals who decided to have children but not take responsibility for those children and so getting back to monogamy fidelity i mean these are the kinds of things we should be talking about if we're going to be serious about this uh, that's whether racism was the root cause or not i mean it, those are the things that that will address the current uh, situation at least one of the major factors but that's not something you see the social justice crowd uh, hardly want to talk about for the most part so they would much rather um joust at windmills that actually then actually do anything that could contribute to helping and solve the problem and uh it's sad it's unfortunate because real people are suffering in the real world because of it yeah it seems like uh when you paint when you paint the sort of like everything is just due to racism right that that the worldview that the left primarily is pushing these days it does seem a little bit in my mind like you're kind of trying to pair essentially what is a, a problem that can't ever truly be solved totally until Christ returns with you know uh, with a solution that is equally as you know uh, unsolvable is that right am I getting that right um yeah I mean well yeah it's not the the some cures uh, not only don't accurately or or um, some cures can't really handle the disease they're meant to cure, but they're actually sometimes worse than the cures that they're trying, that they're attempting to solve. So, um, I, this is a classic, uh, problem with ideologues is they, they tend, since they flatten reality into very simplistic, uh, very simplistic material parts. So everything is oppression or everything is sexism or everything is mm -hmm. racism, then there's solutions to address those things. Uh, tend to miss the mark and then exacerbate the problem by creating more racism or more sexism or more <laughs> right, of whatever it is right. that they're uh, trying to solve. So, uh, so, so we live in a time, I think, right now where the, the common solutions that Me Too, BLM, uh, the COVID cults, uh, you know, the environmentalists, so anything that they're putting out there, it's it, it won't actually solve the issue. What it does is it it creates all kinds of angst and drums up agitation, but uh, at the end of the day, I mean, I give you one example, you know, how many of these cities where historical monuments were taken out now have all of a sudden lower crime rates and less racism. And I mean, it didn't do anything. You know, mm -hmm. if anything, it probably uh, made things uh, worse. It, it, it agitated, it exacerbated, it made people who maybe didn't feel like they were being oppressed. Now they're blaming their whole life situation, anything negative in it on things that happened hundreds of years ago, perhaps that are way outside of their control. And so they, they focus now in the wrong places and uh, we need to get back to personal responsibility and immorality. And, and that is going to solve a lot of the issues that we don't live in a perfect mm -hmm. world, but it'll do far more than what ideologues are offering. What's interesting is that you, you know, you mentioned the, the, uh, uh, Asian, uh, the, the, uh, violence against Asians essentially. And there's been a lot of black on Asian violence. And it's funny to read some of the articles about that. And, uh, you know, the same individuals who are, you know, essentially, uh, blaming everything on white supremacy, somehow like the black on Asian violence is also being chalked up to, 
white, like just the bitter fruit of white supremacy. Have you uh, read those articles? Are you, you understand what, what I'm saying at that point? Yeah, that happened mostly during the COVID stuff. Yeah, first the idea that there was thousands of people trying to prevent Asians from sleeping in their hotels or frequenting their businesses and uh, because they they associated that with COVID, but where there was violent attacks on Asians because they thought they were responsible for COVID. And then, uh, and then there was the spa shooting, which um, was a, a young white male. And, and even though two of his victims were also white, that didn't seem to matter. They, uh, they didn't get any, that, that really wasn't mentioned much in the media. It was just this anti-Asian uh, thing. And um, of course, w- when it's black on Asian violence, though, that doesn't get any mention. That's not, doesn't fit the narrative. That can't be a result of racism. Um, and yet that's, you know, I, I was looking into this when I was writing my book last year, Christianity and Social Justice, and we have far more examples of black on Asian violence than we do white on Asian violence. Um and again, you, you're, you, it's hard to even find motives for these that would, you, you don't have like a manifesto saying like, I really hate Asian people, which is why yeah. I went in. And I, you know, it's, which it's people just reading into the situation, but uh, it's because that's kind of their substitute for original sin, whiteness, maleness, heterosexuality, um, anything that would re- represent Western civilization. And really by, by implication, it's Christian civilization they're talking mm-hmm. about that is forbidden. It's evil. It must be stopped. It's got to be the problem with everything in the world. And so no matter what circumstance arises, that it's always, the the solution is always to uh, point to uh, some kind of um, white male who must be responsible for it or a group of them. So, and then stop them. Well, yeah, what I'm curious about is that, you know, my interest in this subject is largely due to the, you know, my background in counseling. And so, you know, as I've noticed the social justice impulses take off, uh, you know, and the push towards socialism and everything is blamed on, you know, white supremacy. And, the you know, the question is not whether or not racist, racism occurs. It's like, how did it manifest itself in any situation? Uh, the things that, you know, trouble me the most are the fact that it seems like that this is a wholesale repudiation of just, you know, biblical teaching on personal responsibility. And, you know, the like it, it's obvious, like you, you get what you subsidize. I mean, it, it's, it's one of those situations where you know, if you, um, you know, t- basically remove personal responsibility from entire classes of individuals, like nothing ever good comes from that. <laughs> like that right. doesn't, that doesn't result in anything good, you know? So, you know, from my, I, you know, from my vantage point, I, like it's it's baffling to me that so many you know Christians have bought into you know these doctrines in such a way that it's just such a you know it, such a direct assault on any you know notion of personal responsibility. And if you take away personal responsibility, you you take away an individual's ability to repent of the good news, believe the gospel, and you know be saved. And so I think you know from my end, I'm like that's been. You know the most troubling aspect of it uh, to me, like personally. But you know, why why is it? Like, what, what do you think are some of the factors that have led to such a blindness on this issue with individuals who you know should know better? You know, like across the board, like with all of these you know, social justice related issues, it seems like uh, it's been you know, somewhat surprising to me that you have you know big name theologians who you think should know better and just are swallowing this so 
readily. Like, what do you think is causing that? Well, it's like any heresy that arises in the church. It, it, it's always going to be there. There's a time of, uh, kind of figuring out who's, who are the good guys and who are the bad guys, so to speak, who are the ones that are holding to orthodoxy and who are the people that are introducing, um, innovations. And I think, um, where the, the dust hasn't completely settled with this yet. And there's still, and, and it probably should have, but I think there's just a lot of, uh, there's a lot of guys that might even have good motives uh, in a way, but they're unfortunately trying to extend in the name of grace, uh, a lot of, um, <laughs> or charity, uh, just, just they're extending, they're, they're letting orthodoxy stretch so tight. They're, they're trying to still categorize people who are false teachers as somehow orthodox in some way. And that they don't want to let go of the idea that there, there may actually be a false teaching problem here. So, um, I think, and I don't know all the circumstances that have led to this, but they're just, there aren't a lot of men's men today that really like to call things as they are and be direct. And, uh, there's just, there's a lot of weakness in my opinion, a lot of, um, wanting to go along to get along and to be liked. And so I think there's a problem with clarification from, from the start here, because it's just, the water is so muddy that um, someone who's not initiated into understanding what social justice is or why it's a threat or um, how it fuses with the gospel or how it contradicts Christian ethics and metaphysics and epistemology. If someone doesn't understand all that and they're just kind of entering this fray, then it's very hard to make sense out of what's going on. And so I think there's a lot of confusion. I think that's a big part of why there's people being led down this path. It's just not being resisted uh, very much. And the resistance um, that, that it is getting primarily isn't, unfortunately, it's not being led primarily by pastors right now. I, this is the first time I've really said this, I think, but um, it's being led. It, it's primarily people on the internet. It's people who are, uh, some of them are pastors, but they're they're writing blogs and they're having, they're, they're hosting podcasts and these kinds of things. But the, the pulpits of America don't seem to be in sync on this. People mm -hmm. aren't, this is the impression I'm getting at least for the most part, uh, people are not hearing their pastors that you address these issues and whether that's because pastors don't feel like they're and they're adequate or they just don't understand or they're confused. I don't know uh, the full extent, but um, it's creating a, a delayed reaction. Um, but I think in time, you know, Orthodox Christians are already starting to figure this out. And um, as things keep getting worse and you see the left hijacking more and more uh, parts of what were formerly evangelicalism, then the, it, it's becoming more obvious that you can't, it, there can't be a uh, unite, you can't have these two groups united indefinitely. So um, so I don't know if that answers your question completely. You know, why are, I mean, there's also the short answer would be, there's two reasons. There's people are confused and, and just uh, ignorantly going along. So ignorance or, uh, people are evil and there's false teachers and they're willfully bringing this doctrine in. I think there's a combination of both of those things. So. Yeah. I, I kind of piggybacking off of what you said, John, you know, I know you've, I think you've made a few episodes now on your podcast where you sort of broke, you broke down some of um, Megan Basham's articles, for example, where she, she addresses 
um, different you know, issues within the SBC primarily, at least recently, that's been the stuff that I've been reading from her and one, and I, you know, I'm glad that she's been pointing a spotlight on it because I think that's, I think that's been ultimately beneficial, but I think one thing I haven't really seen online is any sort of, well, I haven't seen it widespread at least is any sort of issue with the fact that, you have you have someone like Megan Basham, a woman working for the Daily Wire, who is way way more outspoken and and well researched about all of these things than most men are that should be well versed in it and should you know know what's going on and should have a strong voice in the matter. And I. I guess I I feel a little frustrated by that. Uh, again, I'm super thankful that someone is doing it, but then it is a little, quite frankly, embarrassing. It, have you felt that way at all? Or um, I was actually just thinking about that earlier today because I'm thankful for Megan and some of the exposure that she's brought to these issues. And she's just asking questions a normal reporter should be asking. Right. But there's so little of that. And the reporters that are out there covering these issues tend to... Uh, they root for their side. They're, they're playing, they're trying to um, give a platform to the more progressives in the, in like Southern Baptist circles, or, I mean, that's a lot of what she's covered. Um, But yeah, it certainly is a situation that I think you rightly observe exposes the dearth of men who are uh, willing to actually confront this with any kind of a platform, at least. Uh, And, I don't know exactly what to make of it. I, I would be, I wouldn't be podcasting if that was the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I thought that I would maybe do this for a few weeks and then <laughs> people would realize it. And I, I really thought at the beginning, the problem was people just don't know what's going on. Once they find out, you know, they'll really, and I've, I've figured out that that's not the case at all. People did know what was going on. Enough people did at the higher levels I'm talking about not your everyday pastor, but at the higher levels, enough conservative people that were against this did know what was going on, but I think we're afraid uh, to do much about it. And, um, and and there's just a lot of institutionalism, unfortunately. There's, there's just a lot of wanting to protect the brand, wanting to protect the organization, um, not wanting to be attacked. I mean, no one wants a hit piece against them in the New York Times or the Washington Post, or uh, for that matter, even in Baptist Press. So there, there's just an, an aversion to those kinds of things. And uh, so, you know, I, I think that um, Megan is, uh, do I want to say God's using Megan to judge some of the, uh, maybe, you know, I'm open <laughs> to that. Spinelessness and fecklessness of men. <laughs> yeah, it could be that may, but, you know, I, I'm grateful that she's exposing the truth because I just don't think it would be exposed at least in the same way if you didn't have someone like her, but she's pretty alone. Uh, there mm-hmm. really aren't, she's the only I'm trying to think other reporters that are, I don't, I can't really think of any off the top of my head who are doing what she's doing. So well, well, let's return to the title question for a minute, John. And I want you to give us a, uh, just give us a biblical case uh, against socialism in general and maybe welfare specifically. So what we're being told at every single point is that, Right, these disparities exist in the world, and you know it's our job to fix them. And it seems like the solution that's being given to fix these disparities is 
you know, essentially socialism, essentially the you know forced redistribution of wealth. Uh, that's what we're being told to do. So you like it's a you know essentially it's just a money problem, and um, you know so then you know the the question you know that uh, we're bringing up to ask is you know should old white men be forced to financially subsidize, subsidize black fornication? That's just a question that's arising from. Uh, just a simple observation that, hey, maybe some of these disparities are resulting from moral problems. And maybe if, like, the answer is just redistribute all the money, then, you know, in some sense you're financially subsidizing, you know, certain um, forms of evil. Uh, but then biblically speaking, what are, you know, wh- what is the case against socialism beyond just, you know, our obnoxious question beyond that <laughs> what right. is the case against it biblically uh, why should we care you know and what what does the bible say about these things and uh you know i know that there's a there's many people who essentially have reduced this to a simple political disagreement and then you know the bible can't obviously say anything about politics because separation church and state and all that and so right. so like we're kind of hamstrung at that point but give us a case like what is what is why should we be concerned biblically with this push towards socialism uh, you know, in general, and maybe even welfare in particular. What what's what's the deal? Well, yeah, I mean, it's more than just the forced redistribution of wealth. It's it's redistribution of uh, privilege, of narrative, of truth. Um, sure. you, you have to let someone else that you know, basically tell you who's guilty and innocent in a situation because they supposedly were underrepresented in the past. So therefore, you don't get to say anything. You you have no uh, even if you were an eyewitness, you're eyewitness testimony is worthless. I mean, so this is just so much bigger. Um, when it comes to property, uh, I mean, you have really from the beginning, uh, when you start in Genesis, um, you have God uh, giving man responsibility, dominion over the earth, and it works out. And in, in one of the mechanisms God uses to accomplish his pur- purpose is private property, which is why when he gave Moses the law, we're not supposed to steal uh, that implies that there are things that we have as stewards of God's resources that belong to us for that stewardship. Um, in the New Testament, you see Jesus uh, continually in his parables appealing to this. Even um, I'm thinking of like the parable of the, the vineyard, where you have p- different workers coming and, and working uh, at different uh, times of the day, some are working multiple hours, others are working uh, an hour, shorter periods of time, longer periods of time. And what you see is that it's the landowner, it's it's the the one who owns the vineyard who actually gets to set the wages. And this is in the implication in Jesus' parable is that's actually just and right for the, the person who owns the vineyard to be able to set the wages for the people working in the vineyard. Um, Jesus even has... Um, you know, parables about investment. Uh, you have an ax. Oftentimes this is brought up to try to prove that the Bible is in favor of socialism. The um, situation with the early church where they were sharing all things in common. But the thing that's often overlooked is that that was voluntary. And in the very, the, the very next few chapters, we find the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And they, they're told essentially uh, the reason that they lied against the Holy Spirit um, was because they had sold land and then uh, they said they had essentially donated it all and they didn't. And they were what, what's, uh, what's said to them is that, what, was it not yours when you had it? Was it not yours? It did not belong to you. So 
even the principle of private property is honored in the book of Acts in this context of the early church, which is supposedly the socialist proof text. Uh, so you just have this throughout the whole scripture, this idea that um, there is such thing as private property. This is one of the ways God, uh, is, this is the primary way God uses um, uh, or allows us to have dominion over his creation. And when you start coming up with redistribution schemes for taking from one group of people and giving to another group of people, uh, essentially what you're doing is you're stealing. You're, you're taking what doesn't belong to one group and giving it to another group. And um, it's in the name, really the, the whole um, idea behind it or the, the justification is that really it doesn't belong to them. It belongs to these other people uh, because they have some kind of a victim status or historically there's been things that their ancestors went through that were tough or barriers. And as soon as we start playing that game, then you're getting into a realm in which only God can really move and exist. You're, you're trying to, um, you're trying to make things equitable on this earth in ways that are impossible because there's thousands of years of history. If you want to try to go back and adjudicate all of that, I mean, there's even things we don't know about. I mean, how many crimes go unreported? I mean, mm -hmm. there's just no possible way uh, so why to do, do this justly. And so why do you think it's like there's such a fixation on just the most immediate uh, you know, significant form of uh, oppression that has happened in our country over and against you know, some of the more distant things. Like why, um, you know, I, I've never heard a response to that. And I'm curious if you've heard a response to that argument that you're making. And I mean, the argument you're no, making is I've if never. you try to untangle the knot, like there's no way to untangle it. Like, because, yeah. you know, you go back far enough and, and like, uh, you know, it's just the history of the world is essentially a history of conquest. And so it's right. a history of military conquest and you go back far enough and, you know, how do you sort all these things out? But then there's a unique fascination with just um, slavery in particular and uh, some of the things that happened in the civil rights era. So what, what do you, yeah. you've never heard a response to that? Um, no, I haven't. I mean, the, the best I've heard are people who try to uh, say, well, what if, you know, your grandfather had a watch and, and then someone else's grandfather stole the watch. Now, who does the watch belong to? Like you find out that it was your grandfather's and, and they want to, but the, the problem is though, that's um, not parallel in any way, shape or form to uh, the situations that you just brought up. I mean, so uh, you have uh, a group of people um, that came over from Africa to the new world, right? And uh, in the middle passage, and they, in, in each individual case, I mean, it's going to be different, but primarily you have situations where there was tribal warfare and the slave markets were set up before Europeans ever got there. There was uh, slaves being sold amongst the tribes and to, to Muslims from uh, Arabia. And so, um, so, so you have number one, that's, that's the first person who's, uh, you know, purchased or, or really is selling the slave is profiting from this. And let's say they sell it to some uh, European uh, power that's going to now ship these slaves uh, to the new world. 5% come to the United States uh, of that uh, transatlantic slave trade. And now they're here in, in, you know, off the coast of Virginia or something, or they're shipped down river, wherever the slave market is, someone buys them. And so now, uh, so, so you have, that's three at least minimum, right? You have the person 
the 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 tribal leader, whoever it is, the slave who did trader, the man stealing, who did the who did the man stealing, or or just yeah, the tribal warfare, uh, whatever, okay. whatever, however that came about, you know, because I I don't know that all of this was. I know that's the narrative; it's all man stealing, but it's I think it's even more complicated than that, to be quite honest with you. Um, I mean, some of these slaves who did go back to Africa, uh, I mean, they had no attachment to it. There was no there was no tribe to receive them. There was just a lot of them. Their tribes have been wiped out there and for multiple reasons. But anyway, um, so you have you, you have, let's say, the man stealer, if you want to use that term, but the, the, the slave uh, trader. Then you have the uh, you have the European slave trader who comes over and the shipping industry. And then you have the planter. Who pays? Who's who's the one? I mean, sequentially, you would have to say, well, it's got to be it's got to be that person in 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 Africa, um, you know, that they're the the initial uh, person. But you can't really say that because that you know, that would probably be a black person who's also, you know, wearing kente cloth or something. And that's <laughs> we know during the George Floyd thing, you should wear kente cloth. That's a good thing. And so it's, it's not it, a good look. Huh? It, it's just, yeah. I mean, as soon as you start just asking basic questions, it gets way more complicated. I remember Eric Mason once said this, he said, and I think this really summarizes the logic that's behind a lot of this. Um, he said something to the effect of uh, true reparations would be putting someone in um, elevating someone to the position that they would have been in had you not interfered in their life. Right, elevating someone to the position they would have been in had you not interfered. So essentially, he's saying, well, if there hadn't been slavery, if there hadn't been a slave trade, then where would people who are the ancestors of slaves in this country, where would they be? And that's what you need to pay them. That's how you calculate it out. But if you think about it, it'd be somewhere in Africa right now. And even the most stable governments in Africa, their standard of living does not compare one iota to the standard of living in the United States. So by his logic, actually, the ancestors of slaves would owe uh, the slave traders money. <laughs> hey, thanks for getting our ancestors out of, out of there so we could uh, have upward mobility. And that's not my logic. That's Eric Mason's logic. But I'm just saying that it, it really makes no sense because they're not giving any specifics to any of this. They're not, I don't think they're actually serious about this. Um, it's really just a, it's a narrative. It's a really a weapon they, they can use anytime they want to wield it. Uh, it's a blank check. There is no end to it. So it doesn't matter um, if another 150 years go by, uh, you know, there's still going to be, and maybe reparations has been paid. I mean, some, some uh, uh, there are some places that are trying to, to do something. California, I think just had a reparations bill. I know like the city of Asheville had a something they passed where tax money was going to go to certain uh, demographics, but it doesn't seem to ever change that the, the narrative that, well, there's, there's always going to be something that, that white males owe um, as if they're all complicit in that somehow. So um, I, I just think it's a political weapon for the current day. Um, it probably won't be around forever, um, but it just, it suits the time. And, and that's the a wedge that they can use to separate people, to get them to uh, fight and hate each other. And I mean, that's really all it's produced. Uh, so um, I, I think that's why they're not interested in talking about, you know, other groups of people and maybe the situations that they've undergone from, from the past or the present, really. I mean, every immigrant group that's come to the United States has faced a barrier. That's, and that's 
really to be expected. That's anywhere in the anywhere in the world, uh, an immigrant coming in is going to have a barrier. That's why in the Old Testament there are specific instructions given on how to to treat the alien and the sojourner, because they there is a disadvantage to that, um, and there is a mistrust that has to be, that trust has to be built over time. That's just human nature, you know. Um, so, so, so yeah, I, I, I think it, the black population is large enough that they can use that the progressives, uh, political progressives can use that demographic block as a political weapon. Um, uh, it's why, you know, Hispanics have become more or attempts to use Hispanics, uh, uh, in that way, especially since the election of Donald Trump have taken place. It's a large enough voting block, I think. Uh, it's why you see in Florida, there's like there's a crack in that foundation where they're trying to. Um, I don't remember all the articles, but there was stuff coming out about how Cubans were kind of like the white adjacent people now. <laughs> they're like because they didn't vote the way that the Democrats wanted them to. Right. They lost their oppressed, even though they had to live under Castro. You know, so many of them talk about oppression, but it doesn't count. Uh, you know, it, it's like when uh, what's his name uh, Zimmerman, right? When he um, the the shooting that took place, right. Um, you know, he he got uh, all of a sudden honorary white status. <laughs> it's like, you know, the guy was um, uh, Hispanic or at least half Hispanic. So there, you can't really look for objectivity or consistency with it. If you do, you'll lose your mind because it's not about that. At the end of the day, it's about who they want to destroy and rip down. It's not about who they want to elevate. Because I really, I, I sincerely believe this. I don't think that people. Um, I don't think that the people behind this push are interested in helping these oppressed people groups. I really don't. I think that they're interested in lining their own pockets. Well, so you're you're agreeing they're oppressed? Well, no, I'm well <laughs> allegedly <laughs> allegedly yeah. oppressed. So some of the, some some of them maybe. I mean, sometimes they look. I, I was just at the Navajo reservation uh, not too long ago, and um, there's a lot of poverty there. And uh, you know, when you look at the history of what took place, I mean, there's really no denying that there was some very unjustified things that took place uh, to put them on some of the worst land in, in uh, for, for a reservation. I mean, you can't grow anything. It's just terrible in many ways. But even if someone's ancestors were legitimately impressed and, you know, they've gone and gotten a bad rap, how come the helping hand of the government seems to, to do hardly anything, nothing? It, it almost, it works against them. Um, and it's because we understand as Christians, human nature is, we're supposed to have dominion. We're supposed to own things. We're supposed to kind of, we're made for walking uphill. We're made, uh, we're made to accomplish things. And when you rob someone's dignity by just giving them, here's, here's a bunch of money. Here's a bunch of opportunities. Yeah. You didn't earn any of it. You can't take pride in any of it, but, um, but we're just giving it to you because we feel so sorry for you. Well, you're going to get low expectations at that point. And um, I mean, any parent who raises kids knows this. Uh, it's the part of a reason kids have an allowance often, or they, they have to uh, demonstrate responsibility. I mean, you're not going to get that if you just let them, you just subsidize their irresponsible ways of life and let them, let's let, let them have any pleasure they want to have and just subsidize that you're you're not going to get success that way. So there's a, just such a basic misunderstanding of human nature, but at the end of the day, I think the people behind uh, the social justice push or after power. It's not after helping people. It's after power. So what, what makes you, um, what makes you say that they're after power, not after helping them? 
Well, I think, well, because of what I just said, their, their policies aren't actually helping. Uh, mm-hmm. And so that's one there. You'd think if, if something keeps failing, you would want to go back to the drawing board and kind of figure out why is this failing? Let's come up with something new, but it's just, the solution is always more of the same. We mm-hmm. need more money. We need a bigger budget. The schools are failing. Oh my goodness. We, we got to fund those schools more that are failing. <laughs> yeah. Right. So that's, that's one, um, one indicator in my mind. The other thing is um, you, you could probably point to the fact that personally, um, like I'll give you an example, Mississippi and uh, Utah tend to give more in charitable donations than any other state in the country, even though Mississippi is the poorest state. And the, the thing they have in common is they're both very religious. One's Mormon, one's uh, evangelical and um, primarily. And, and so they, um, they give more to charity than places like California and Massachusetts. Uh, and some of the more progressive states that have more affluence give less to charity. Why is that? If they love people so much, if they really want to help them, you know, they prefer to look, make the government force you to give your money to, to an effort to supposedly help them, but they aren't willing to, to do it themselves. And, um, and so that's another th- indicator in my mind that it's really not about the people, it's about power. Um, there's probably other things I could point to that I haven't just thought of uh, off the top of my head right now, but mm-hmm. um, I, I think just being in academia too, just getting to know <laughs> progressives, I can just, you know, there's just kind of an avert. There's a lot of talk about the, the, the unwashed masses and a huge aversion to actually uh, oftentimes, I'm not saying in every case, but oftentimes there's a huge aversion among elites to actually visit the areas where those unwashed masses live uh, to help them. Um, to get involved with that kind of thing with which conservative Christians do all the time. That's part of, of who we are. So, yeah. So what, what, what do you, why don't you weigh some of the causes to some of these disparities? And so there's obviously a lot of disparities as it relates to just income, Always as it relates be. to, yeah. as it relates to crime, as it relates to, you know, education, as it, it relates to um, just some of the moral things that we mentioned. So what, what, how, how are you weighing, you know, the possible causes you mentioned the fact that, you know, it could be, you, you, we need to reject this simplistic one size fits all explanation that it's just white supremacy, or maybe even that it's all just the bitter fruit of uh, slavery. Uh, what, what is it, you know, uh, I, I, or how are you weighing, weighing those things? If that makes sense. Yeah. I don't pretend to know all the, the, the factors and everything. Um, I think even conservatives can fall into uh, like political conservatives, a trap of doing something on the other end that's similar and saying it's all the great society, it's all government policy. I don't think that makes sense either. Um, it, and I, I think that there's more truth in that because you can actually you can crunch numbers and you can actually, Thomas Sowell's done a lot and Walter Williams and Milton Friedman, a lot of the guys from that Chicago School of Economics have done a lot of number crunching on that and shown, um, you know, and there's all sorts of charts out there showing here's great society policies. And here's all these other barometers that seem to um, uh, skyrocket as these policies are implemented. Uh, so um, the minimum wage, you know, is one, I mean, Walter Williams talks about that a lot, you know, being a factor. Um, so I, I do think there are economic factors that are policy related. I think that's true. I think there's um, also the culture, culture tends to be left out of both analyses. And it's a harder one, I think, to um, it's difficult to, to take culture and put numbers on it. And I, I don't know to what extent even work has been done on this. A lot of modern sociology is so politically correct. It's, it's just asking 
asking the questions you probably need to ask would be difficult. But I think it's obvious that um, take it down to like a very macro or micro level, different households are going to function with different levels of efficiency. Uh, and, and that could be part of just basic family culture. Um, you know, some families, you know, and, and it may just be part of their values. I mean, some families don't value a clean house, let's say, uh, as much as the, the time they spend in recreation, right? Whereas another sure. family does. I mean, I knew families growing up, homeschool families that were just like, our kids are 12 and they have PhDs. Yes. You know, it's like, what? But that, that's, you know, we do school through the summer. We're doing school 10 hours a day. I mean, it's part of who their family is. And some of those, I'm thinking of even specific people right now that I know that um, they, I mean, they went far quick because they're, you know, 20 years old and they're doctors and stuff like they can uh, work in, in these professional fields, whereas others are, you know, it's like 10 years later for them. So, um, so, so different families have different values that are going to lead to different outcomes um, but the same thing I think is true of cultures. Uh, I mean, that's really what a cult, what is a culture? It's a, it's a big family. It's a, an extended family. So if you have, um, you know, people from the Midwest, they tend to be very, uh, I know very organized people, you know, Germans who settled there, they're going to be very organized, very, um, just, you know, everything's in good work, tip top working condition. That's just a tendency they have. They're good with machinery. They tend to be um, people in the South, let's say I have a lot of family in Mississippi, you know, they tend to, there's a lot of Scotch, Irish and English blood there and their cultures, uh, tend to be a little more okay with like half buried cars in the lawn <laughs> because right. you never know, you might mm -hmm. need that part one day or something. <laughs> um, and, and that's just the way that they are. They don't value the same kinds of things. And that works out. That's going to work out differently in all sorts of things, uh, healthcare, uh, access and, um, and, and of course, the environment also plays a part. Uh, if you're in an area, like I was just mentioning the Navajo, I mean, you can't plant anything where they are. Uh, many areas of Appalachia, it's topsoil. Uh, you can't really plant stuff. You can try to have cattle or something, but that's expensive. That's a lot of overhead. So um, some, some of these communities, the prison is the main you know, employer for the area or something which doesn't really bring with it a lot of moral behavior. So I just think it's really complicated. Um, I'm not saying you can't come up with an answer. Uh, at least you can, you can probably come up with like, here's the top three things that probably contribute and things we could change. But I, I think that there's just so many things that contribute to uh, success uh, in the common way we, we think of success, material financial success. So much, much of uh, Sowell's critique in you know his book, uh, Black Rednecks and White Liberals. Have you read that? I'm sure you I have. have. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, much of his critique is essentially a cultural critique, and you know part of what he's saying is that yes, there's the entitlement programs that happen, and so uh, one of the things he does in that book, uh, if I'm remembering correctly, is that he's cataloging the you know, the uh, rate of illegitimacy and essentially saying that black illegitimacy rate post-Civil uh, War was essentially on par with, uh, you know, what might be described as white illegitimacy rate. And it began to skyrocket with the, you know, his, his analysis was there was the programs, like there was the Great Society, there was the welfare, but then there was this, um, uh, what he described as a sanctification of a, um, 
you know, Southern black redneck culture as being definitive of what true blackness actually was. And so right. uh, part of what he, like his analysis is essentially that once uh, the, uh, you know, um, uh, elites in the academy essentially identified what he did, what he is describing as Southern black redneck culture with uh, authentic blackness, then that essentially uh, that that move, uh, you know, basically put a roadblock in a way from uh, in the way of black progress in particular, because right. uh, there are these differences in values that are there, and like that that uh, not all cultures are equal and it and it does seem to me that like if um if you embrace multiculturalism it seems like you have a situation where if all cultures must be equally praised and valued and you you have no mechanism of critiquing cultures then it seems like you've uh, done the death blow to like the kind of things that lead actually to success in a society you know as evidenced by you know that infamous uh, national museum of african american history poster that was put out yeah. uh, where you know all you know what you might describe as biblical uh, priorities that lead to success like that you can find in the proverbs are being identified as you know just you know uh, arbitrary elements of whiteness but uh, you know as far as his cultural critique uh, you know, how would you respond to that? Like in terms of that kind of uh, critique that he's putting forward, yeah, do you think it's an oversimplification? I do. I, I and I wasn't quite prepared to respond to all of souls. I, I'm trying to remember it now. I think he says that cracker culture essentially, right, is right. Celtic culture. I think so. I think one of his main flaws, in my opinion, in that book, and there's and the, there's so much I like about Sowell, and I do recommend his books, and I think he's making some good points in that book. So I should say that. But I think one of the issues with his critique is that. Um, Appalachia, you know, the, the, he's trying to say cracker culture, the Scotch Irish people who mainly settled in Appalachia, that they had this effect on um, the slave population. But really, it, to me, that doesn't quite make sense because it, it would have been the, the Piedmont, the lowlands, really, the, those areas in which where there was actual slave populations, it wouldn't have been Appalachia. Um, and so they would have been actually rubbing shoulders more with uh, a planter class. Um, I think, and, and you see after recon, well, during reconstruction, um, all they really wanted primarily, well, a lot of freed slaves wanted was to be a, a farmer. They wanted, they, they wanted what they saw, what they saw in their everyday life experience. Um, they wanted to be, uh, like the planter class that they had been living with for so long. And so I, I don't really see that connection so much, uh, to be honest with you. Um, obviously Southern culture, uh, itself, I mean, just because so many, you don't see the parallels or you don't see like, like the parallels that he's bringing up in terms of like the parallels between, uh, what he's describing as, you know, authentic, true black culture and Southern redneck culture. You don't see the historical connection. Well, it's been a while since I read it, but at at the time when I read it, I thought that it it was, uh, I just thought, remember thinking, I think Thomas Sowell's a good economist, but I didn't. I didn't necessarily think his his history was necessarily oh, all, all right in that. I I think um, yeah. Authentic, I, what is authentic black culture? What does he say? Do you, I, I can't remember. What, what is his definition for that? Well, well, yeah. What he was describing as authentic black culture, uh, from what I remember, is essentially like um, like uh, what's described as 
authentic black culture is like the focus on um, big purchases in particular. So uh, he gave a list of things and you know, part of it's like a focus on big purchases over and against like principles of delayed gratification. And then, you know, focus on hair trigger violence, like in terms of just uh, uh, there's, um, you, you know, part of like, everything that you might describe, like he would describe Southern black redneck culture is essentially what you're going to find in a rap video. Okay. <laughs> And so, yeah, you know, yeah, focus I, on violence, focus on, like, focus on hair trigger violence, vengeance, yeah. uh, focus on big purchases, you know, shiny, uh, you know. Yeah, I bling. think he's but, off on that. I think he's off on that. Um, and I, don't, I mean, I don't think Scotch Irish people were off, you know, in, um, in Africa telling the dictators there how to dress or anything like that either. I mean, I think. Oh, you mean the, the parallel with redneck culture you think is off? Yeah, I think that's off. I, I, it okay. doesn't, um, I'm not, I don't know, maybe there is a, a connection there of some sort, but I, I don't think it's as tight as Thomas Sowell's making it. Um, and it doesn't make sense to me geographically or historically okay. either. Um, yes, during uh, reconstruction of sharecroppers worked with each other, poor whites with poor blacks. And in fact, you see, you know, Elvis pretty much. I mean, that's kind of, he comes out of that, which is why he goes to a Pentecostal church and he dresses the way he does. He's actually dressing like the black people in Memphis and swinging his hips like a Pentecostal pastor. And mm -hmm. North, northerners saw that and thought, oh my goodness, you know, make sure that you don't uh, cover that up, hide your daughters and make sure on the Ed Sullivan <laughs> show, you don't show his, his legs uh, swinging, you know, was that Elvis? I mean, today they want to make that, this, that hypersexualization. That was Elvis being affected by black people and he didn't give them credit or something. But uh, it, the, the thing is there, there was in, in the South, here's the thing that northerners tend to do, I think a lot more than Southerners. Northerners tend to come up with like categories for black, white, where it's like, well, that's black music. That's white music. That's black food. That's white food. But, but Southerners haven't really tended to do that. Soul food is just Southern food. So the white people eat it, black people eat it. Um, I remember I was at uh, uh, college and they had like this uh, black history month meal. They were going to have this whole big thing. And they had, you know, fried chicken and collard greens and watermelon and all this stuff. And I thought it was great. I was like, oh, this is just like my family in Mississippi. What <laughs> they eat, they're, you know, they're white, but it's what everyone ate, but, but it's categorized as this is black. Um, and, and I think th that's one of the differences in looking at something like that cultural factors. There was a merger there. There's a blending of, of cultures. Um, and uh, in, in the North, since I think there were lower uh, populations of minorities in many of the States, they tend to ghettoize or, um, like in New York City, for instance, I mean, they uh, they had the kind of their own very distinct regions that they they live in to this day. Uh, and um, the, the mixing didn't quite happen as much. It is now more. But um, anyway, I'm trying to remember wh why I'm getting off on this. I think so. Thomas Sowell. Yeah, I think his I think it's just an oversimplification a little bit, but I don't think there's it doesn't lack any merit. I think I think the point he's trying to make, especially with a great society, I think is good one. Uh, and. I think morality drives things more than anything else. I think that's why Western civilization has been so successful. You have an entire civilization that said, you know what, monogamy is a good idea. We're not going to base our civilization on a tribal uh, kind of foundation. It's going to be a family foundation of monogamous. Uh, there's fidelity. It's, um, I think that alone makes a huge difference for the success of a culture. I think um, believing what the Bible says about the, the God putting the universe, uh, building the universe the way he did uh, with order, that's going to um, 
foster scientific experimentation and, and discovery, uh, thinking the thoughts of God after him, as one uh, inventor said. So I think, um, I, th- I think that stuff, as Christians, I think we can appreciate and understand that probably more than anyone, uh, that we see this on the micro level with families that follow the Lord, which we, we would also see it on a macro level with civilizations or cultures that tend to closer, closer than others follow God's law. They're going to do better. That's just practicing Proverbs. And, and I think that I'm not saying that is everything. Um, like you can't make a good, you know, there's some cuisines you can't be proficient at in certain regions because you just don't have like the spices available or whatever to make them. But, but if we're talking about material prosperity, then um, practicing the Bible's precepts is going to be the main thing that I think contributes. So, the, and the founders understood this. They, they understood that freedom, responsibility, religion, they all, those things all went together. And if, if one of them fell, if, if religion fell, then you would lose freedom, essentially, because you would have mm-hmm. people that don't have responsibility anymore. And when they don't have responsibility, it makes way for a tyrant to come in uh, who's going to, when everyone's crying out for order, they're going to bring order. Uh, right. Well, so I guess uh, the question then becomes... Um, so there's a variety of factors that can lead, you know, part of what you're trying to say is there's a variety of factors that can lead to just some of these disparities, including, you know, um, historical injustice, um, current cultural problems, um, and just uh, areas in which particular cultures are you know, failing to reflect a biblical uh, morality and or uh, failing to live up to biblical principles in terms of wisdom. Uh, you know, what the the critique that's often given from the other side is essentially you know the critique that um, these you know structural inequalities are so pronounced like in the past meaning like you know the the effects of slavery the effects of um, you know segregation they're so pronounced that you know essentially we have to make up for it somehow now and we have to you know fix you know partiality in the past with endless partiality in the present. Uh, but then, you know, how are you, um, how are you weighing like um, these starting points now? So, like, there's obviously been injustices in the past, and they're obviously significant, and they're put into a pot along with a lot of you know cultural issues and everything else that are now affecting some of these disparate outcomes. But then, you know, if you're looking at the situation today, you know, how are you an- uh, analyzing like the current state of affairs? Meaning, like, you know, and and a black person in America today, is there anything keeping them from, you know, being successful in the same way as a white person might be like, is, you know, is, are, are these um, historical problems and our present reality, you know, systemic racism and everything else, are they such a barrier to progress today that, um, that they become crippling, you know, how are you weighing like the current situation? If anything, black people are overrepresented in most of the, influential industries. I mean, if you turn on the television and you look at the commercials, you're going to see, I mean, for a population that only represents 16% of the population in the entire country on national television, uh, they're in like 95% of the commercials. I mean, it's hard to find a commercial that doesn't have at least one black person in it. Um, Sometimes they're all black people. So I think that it's obvious at this point to anyone who who has uh, who doesn't have the ideological blinders on sure. that uh, there's actually you, you have a great advantage 
uh, if you're a minority uh, of some kind uh, over someone who's white uh, in many um, like education uh, you do in uh, in the state I live in in New York. I mean, if you wanted, uh, you know, there's certain medical things that you just if you're black, you get access to like they they were going to and they rolled out the vaccine you know, for black people first. Uh, and it, when they were in short supply. So, I mean, th this is the kind of thing that is happening. Aren't they talking about like triage, like medical triage now that is a minority yeah, first? Yeah, yeah, medical justice. Yeah. So it's it's like when I went to school, I remember there was a friend of mine who uh, he was, I remember one day he went and we got food and he didn't have to pay for it. He had some kind of, I don't remember what it was. And I asked him, you know, as a card or something, I said, where'd you get that? And he goes, oh, I, I get it for, uh, it's a, basically affirmative action thing. And I'm like, wait, what do you mean? Explain that to me. You know, does your dad, does he doesn't make as much as, cause I thought our dads were around the same. And he goes, yeah, I mean, our, our dads probably make the same amount of money, but he said, but I'm black. And so he goes, I got a tra transportation, um, a voucher and I have a food voucher and my textbook voucher and my tuition's paid for. And he goes, and I have money left over at the end of the semester that I got to figure out how to spend. <laughs> And I'm like working a job so I can try right. to pay for tuition. And I'm like not eating what he's eating. And I, I remember at that moment, I just thought, wow, that's, you know, it's to, it, it's to his advantage, well, to his advantage. Um, but I, I know of people though, in those situations who didn't value the education because of that, they would be, you know, it's not everyone, but a lot of people, and I don't know what the numbers would be, but they, uh, just some personal experience, they would have it paid for, but they're sitting in the cafeteria while their classes you know, happening because, you know, you don't, who cares? You know, you're not, I cared though, because I'm like, I'm paying a lot of money <laughs> to be here. And so I, I so, so the, the question is kind of like, it, it, you could answer it different ways. Like, is that to my advantage or was that not to my advantage? Well, I guess if, if I could get a free education and I would, I would work hard for it and have that same level of uh, just, you know, of hard work and fortitude and all that, then it probably would be to my advantage. But once you're given a free handout, you, you tend to, it's just, you, you don't value it as much. You don't put in the work as much. Um, and so in, in that sense, it was, uh, it's to someone who's receiving that welfare, it's to their disadvantage. Uh, generational welfare is a lot like slavery, except there's not even any dignity in it. And yet people sure. that are just you know, their grandparents were on the dole, their great grandparents were on the dole, they're on the dole. Um, is that to their advantage? Oh, no. But does <laughs> cast not. a shadow on any kind of achievement that you ever yeah. uh, accomplished in your life? It, you know, you always are left with this sneaky suspicion that it wasn't because you deserved it. It was because you were uh, Matt Chandler's six yeah. instead of the white eight, and, you know. <laughs> and, and if you do well on something, you receive the stigma and the ire of everyone else because you they feel like you're making them look bad. And so right. there's a, a lot of pressure to stay on the dole uh, for, for in some of these communities. It's really, really a sad thing. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think to answer your question that, that absolutely uh, there's an advantage to being a minority uh, in the United States today. Um, but in the same breath, uh, in, in some ways, it's not to your advantage if it, it, if it causes you to uh, decrease your motivation for life. Um, so that the worst, the, the more money we throw at the problem, I think the worse it'll get in some ways because uh, it encourages 
immoral behavior, um, laziness, all, all those things that it's supposed to rectify, it actually, it encourages. Uh, and that's because of a basic misunderstanding of human nature that sure. our politicians have. They, they're humanists. They don't understand the man is sinful. And that's all men, red, wet, mm-hmm. yellow, black, and white. We all have the same problem at the end of the day. So you start treating certain populations different than others, you'll see the result. And I think we are seeing the result. And so that, and that is part of that factors into some of the disparities that we're seeing in crime and other things. I mean, it, you can't just throw money at something and not require responsibility and expect that you're going to have a, a, a society or a population that's you know, following the law and being responsible. Well, where do you mm-hmm. think that maybe maybe we can, uh, Harrison? If you have anything left over, uh, you can go for it after this. But uh, where, where do you think this all ends up? I mean, like in terms of uh, it, it doesn't seem like um, like the, the more that you know the elites are doubling down on white supremacy as an all-purpose explanation for every you know path, pathology that exists out in the world. It doesn't seem like that that's producing any good fruit, and it doesn't seem like it's building unity between. Uh, you know, the different ethnicities at that point. And so where, where do you, where do you think this is going to end up? Uh, I mean, it can only end up in more conflict and greater strife between people groups and mistrust. And that's the main thing that we're facing. I think right now in the United States is we have a crisis, um, uh, at least when it comes to society at large, there's a, a crisis of trust. We don't trust our institutions. Uh, that's the left and the right neither side really trust their institutions. There's corruption that's everywhere. Um, we don't, it, it's, it's very hard to trust each other. Uh, and, you know, this is one of the things that I think ideologues don't understand because they, they're all their solutions are instantaneous. They want to immediately implement some kind of measure to make things equal. And, and what they don't understand is that societies, just like people, we tend to build trust gradually. When, when, with shared experience over time. Uh, and so when you have populations that mistrust each other, that are kind of, they're, they're not interacting much, they're, you know, people are moving out of these urban areas where there's crime. And now you want to try to, um, to force some kind of overarching plan to, to, make, <laughs> to make everything equitable and to fight racism or something like that, then you, you're, you're not going about it the right way. You're not, no, you don't have really a foundation for anything like that. And, uh, and this has been the whole problem, the, the civil rights movement up to the present, this has really been a huge problem uh, with a forced busing and all that stuff, you know, to what extent did it actually promote some of the, the problems that even we have now? Um, it, it, it just, uh, it didn't take into account human nature. And so, um, Christians, I think, have an opportunity to, to be the ones, the salt and the light, the ones that can lead the best on this because we have a bond that transcends culture. And uh, I think this is actually, believe it or not, the, the intent behind the Christian nationalism. I don't know if anyone else is saying this, but I, I see that as it, there's so much instability out there. Uh, and you can't really, it, what's the glue that's going to help us to band together so we don't completely fracture apart? And, and I think r- reasonable people, are saying the only thing it's got to be religion. Like our diversity is obviously not our strength. That's a lie. That's never, that was never true. Um, and, and now at the point in, at which we're at now, it's, it's less and less so. So it can't be that multiculturalism isn't like, a, there's no like abstract principle that can bind us together. 
a devotion to equality is not going to bind us together. Um, you know, uh, some kind of, obviously some kind of a racial, you know, identity can't bind us together. We're all, you know, there's so many different, uh, races, uh, a, a kind of commitment to, um, uh, you know, some kind of shared language is even hard to, to use to bind us together because now there's, uh, uh, in, in some parts of the country, Spanish is spoken more than even English. So like, what is it? What's the thing? And I think the Christian nationalism thing is kind of a, a last ditch endeavor to say, this is the thing that we can use that, that will hold us in common. Thing is though, you know, how many people claim Christianity? I mean, I, I don't know, the polls change, but it was in the seventies percent, including Catholicism, something like that. So that's kind of what they're pointing to is like, well, you know, this kind of generic Christianity is going to save the day. Sure. I think you and I both know that's probably not the case. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a generic Christianity that takes into account Catholics, Eastern Orthodox, every flavor of Protestantism. It's, there's really not enough there. Uh, there I mean, we're talking a very, we're, we're, there's some shared, you know, we, we use the term Jesus. We, we have the same person in mind uh, when we think of Jesus, but we have Bibles, but, but our doctrines are so different. Oh yeah. I mean, you can just look at the SBC right now. They and know can't even. That, yeah. Right. <laughs> so I don't think the Christian nationalism thing is going to work either. So it's going to, it's going to fracture. It is fracturing. We're living in it. Um, it's, we're going to become weaker over time unless God does something. God could, if we had a true Christian revival, like the, uh, the first great awakening, which really did solidify 13 different colonies into being able to fight Great Britain together and to unite in a common endeavor to form a country. If we don't have something like that, an event like that, then I don't see good things happening. We get taken over. Um, we, I don't know, there's, there's efforts maybe in the future to, for some states to secede or something. California is constantly talking about that. Used to be Texas. Now it's California. Well, that's the that's the thing. Oh. I mean, even if there is some sort of uh, su- succession, like it, it seems to me that the Republicans just they want to be Democrats as much as the Democrats do. They just don't. I agree. They, like they're just in code. But I mean, it's it's funny that you mentioned that because I I just uh, this Sunday was was preaching a message on Jonah and essentially. Uh, you know, Jonah's message to the Ninevites is repent or in 40 days, you'll be destroyed. And, you know, they all repented from the least of them to the greatest. And, you know, it seems to me that, you know, every, every society that practices the abominable practices that we are practicing, like we're doing all the things that the nations did that God drove out of the promised land. And, you know, the Bible says that, that, uh, the land itself was vomiting them up. And apart from some sort of whole scale mass repentance, like I don't see any hope for, our country yeah. and our hope, hope and our hope. Uh, we only have hope in nation. the Lord. That's the it. That's it. it we varies. need repentance. Like we don't need a like we don't need a political solution. And like like we like um, you know. And I'm not saying that the way that you know these limp-wristed TGC guys are saying that in order to get you to vote Democrat. I'm just saying we need repentance, man. <laughs> you know? That's yeah. what we need. Yeah. No, I totally agree with you on that. I think um, the it, it's in the hands of the Lord, and and there are. I mean, there's things. You know, if you, you know, what if you, I mean, just going into the inner, the, the, the back of my mind, but you know, what if you went to Alaska and, you know, got all the Christians to go to Alaska or something and say, <laughs> now we're all here and now we're seceding. Like we're, we're our own thing. Cause guess what? We were our own thing for a long time. And 
you know, we we don't need. But we're so divided, anyways. Like, there's no <laughs> unity within right, the, the church. As long you, we'll just make a requirement. Like, if they don't read TGC, they can come or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> 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 you know, uh, if there's some kind of, you know, you, you get. I mean, that's what some people are trying to do in Moscow, Idaho. There's like a whole group of uh, Presbyterians there that they go there. They're like, well, Doug Wilson's here, and and it's turning that area kind of more red, um, and and that's kind of. That's just happening kind of organically, but even with that, and I'm not against doing things like that. I think there's there's some truth to it, but we, we have to be salt and light in in the world. We can't just create a holy huddle that that never works. Like the Puritans showed us that that doesn't work long term. It, it takes one generation, and well, we can have a halfway covenant. You know, <laughs> they can be part of the church too. I know they're not living it. And so, you know, so, I mean, the problem's internal, you know, you can't shut the world out. It's in your heart, you know? So, um, so, so I'm not against that necessarily, but let's just be realistic about it. it. That's not like a final solution to any of this stuff. And there really isn't a perfect, great final solution that we can implement that will perfectly uh, preserve the America that we grew up with or want or any of that. Uh, so, um, so I, I think, you know, if you're a, a family, like someone like myself, who's younger, um, who's trying to think through, okay, what, what world do I want children to grow up in? And that kind of thing, you know, take that into account. Uh, but, you know, don't have the view that you, you're going to be able to outlast necessarily what's happening. What's happening is going to keep happening. It's, it's Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, it's just going to keep, I can't even believe what happened this June in my own town, uh, as far as the LGBT, um, stuff. I mean, I've never seen it so brazen, so mainstream, so normalized that'll just keep happening. And so we're going to have to prepare for persecution. Um, but hopefully with, uh, with smiles on our faces that we're, we, we know we serve a greater master and this is what the church has gone through for millennia. It's no different Mm -hmm. in some ways. It's just no different. We have to remember that even though technology is advanced. Um, so on that rousing note, <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I do have one final question for you, John. And you know, the, the title question is, is should old white males be forced to financially subsidize black fornication? And, you know, we spent the whole conversation basically saying, Hey, look, the stuff doesn't work. It, it destroys everything. It touches it. Um, you know, uh, welfare doesn't build anyone up. It doesn't give anyone dignity. In fact, it it might even enslave them in worse ways than you know chattel slavery did, um, and we know it. We know that the solution doesn't. So we know the solution doesn't come from throwing money at the problem. We know it doesn't come from you know uh, electing you know uh, uh, Republicans instead of Democrats. Ultimately, the the solution comes from pursuing biblical ideas um, and and. You know, the stuff that's taught in Proverbs, for example. So knowing all of that, knowing that throwing money at the problem doesn't work, and in reality, you're probably funding through through your taxes, you're probably funding, you know, worse things down the line for for not only other people's children, but all, also your children eventually or your children's children mm-hmm. um, because of the way society is trending so is there any point in your mind where a Christian has to say to themselves, knowing that all of this is going on, I can no longer in good faith fund these things, meaning, you know, oh. I can no longer, you know, like 
pay taxes the way that I used to? That's a good question. Uh, <laughs> and I'm not, I, I didn't really think through. Um, so I'll, I'll just tell you, for me personally, I, I believe, I, I do appeal to what Jesus said about render to Caesar what Caesar's as legitimizing um, taxes, even to a regime that wasn't Christian in, in really any right. sense. So I, I, I don't think there's a, there's culpability if you pay taxes. I, I don't. Um, and here's, here's where it gets tricky, though. All right. So let's say there was a tax, the abortion tax or something like that, right? Right. They're like, this is the special line item that you need to contribute to. Um, I think that would be a little different. And the reason I think that would be different is I think I, I, I view that like abortion as that's part of the religion of the, uh, the secularists or the humanists. And I think at that point, you're pinching the incense to, to, to Caesar in a way that is, is making Caesar out to be God, that Caesar now has uh, the, the, the right to determine when life comes into being and the right really to take life. Um, and, and so I, I don't think that this isn't really the most black and white answer probably you're looking for, but I do think it depends on the situation. Um, the other thing to consider though, is also whether or not a government's legitimate. And here's the thing, if you do this, because some people I know, uh, I actually know a guy uh, when I was a kid who, 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 did, who, who thought this way, that look, he said the income tax isn't constitutional. They've been doing it for years. You can't, you, you can't make an argument that it's right, though. It, it's, it's always been illegal. And so I'm just not going to pay it. So if you're going to do that, then just know what your life is going to be. This guy moved from state to state, job to job, you know, because he has to find a place he can work or, or you know, support himself uh, that he's going to be one step ahead of the authorities or something. Um, and, and, and he's not you know, going to be required to pay social security and that kind of thing. That becomes difficult. Uh, but there are people for principle. And, and to some extent, I respect someone like that. If that's what you really believe and you, you know, that's what the way you're going to live and okay, you know, you don't think this is legitimate, mm -hmm. but um, at some point I think a, a, a pragmatic or just a prudence, a matter of prudence, you know, how do I live in the community that I'm in, minister to the people that are in this community, do so in a way that I'm, you know, not, um, you know, in jail, <laughs> I can provide for my family. It's my part of my responsibility, you know, trying to balance all those things. Um, I'm going to, I pay my income taxes. You know, I, I do, uh, I don't, I don't think there's anything wrong or sinful about it. Um, if there was a competing government, you know, if there was like the situation in Ukraine, let's say, where you have two competing governments and let's say you're in a place that, you know, one day it's one group, one day it's another group that you have to pay allegiance to, you're probably going to end up joining the effort somehow and you're going to have to pick a side. And mm -hmm. um, so I, I don't think it's as clear cut um, in, in a situation like that. But if we get to that point, like we did in the American War for Independence, where you have committees of correspondence that act like a shadow government. And now they're the, they, they become now, they're the legitimate government. The, the crown is no longer the legitimate government. You have to make a choice. And a lot of loyalists, they went back to England at that point. They, they either had to, um, to go along with what the patriots were doing because the patriots won, or they had to just go back to England and say, you know, on principle, I can't abide this. And um, 
So I'm not exactly sure where your question's coming from on that, but you know, if, if it's a matter of, you know, money's going to abortion or something like that indirectly, I don't, I don't think that is something that we're responsible for. That's the, those are the people who are spending it. So I'm saying like if it goes into a general fund or something like that, and, and some of that money ends up going to Planned Parenthood and then Planned Parenthood makes this choice to use some of it towards abortion or something, um, then I, I believe that that is, um, that the sin is not with the person paying the tax. The tax should be going for, uh, for, for, you know, general welfare. Punishing evil. Well, yeah, it should be going to punish evil. Yeah, it should be going to punish evil, but it, it, we obviously have a wider, it's, it's for this common good now it's for all these different things and that your taxes should be going to the, the local fire department and the police and, and now welfare and all these other things. Um, but I, I don't think that that means you're in sin just because you pay mm-hmm. it. So some might disagree. Maybe you disagree with me. I don't know. But yeah, no, I, I just wanted to hear what you had to say. I don't know that I necessarily have like a secret agenda with that question or whatever, either way. Um, but I think I do think that is a, a pretty good place to uh, land on right there. Um, just having like some sort of practical, like this is something to think through for yourself, you know, uh, uh, because we will be held accountable, you know, like what we do with our finances. And so we do need to at least have an answer. Right. And so uh, and and I like what I do like what you said there. You know, basically, you can't be held accountable for um the way other people, <laughs> the uh, the way other people use the money, you know that that is uh, that we are required to give, you know, to the government uh, through taxation, right? And so, so I think that hopefully that hopefully that's a freeing thing for some people who might be feeling like, hey, whether it's you know whether it's abortion or uh, welfare or whatever it is that that they don't necessarily agree with, that they don't think. Um, ultimately is is very honoring to god they can sort of be free from that responsibility i think um so john you've been you've been really helpful you've been a really good sport answering all our questions where can people go to find uh more from you uh just go to worldviewconversation.com and you'll find all my social media links there pretty much okay Uh, great well uh we want to take this time to just thank all of you who are listening um we really appreciate all the support you guys listening week in and week out. And hopefully this has been something that has blessed you. It's edifying to you and it, it is uh, helping equip you to understand how to live your life in a way that honors God. Um, and so again, we thank you for all your support and we look forward to having you guys on the next one. Thanks. This has been another episode of Bible Bashed. We hope you have been encouraged and blessed through our discussion. We thank you for all your support and ask you to continue to like and subscribe to Bible Bashed and share our podcast with your friends and on social media. Please reach out to us with your questions, pushback, and potential topics for us to discuss in future episodes at BibleBashedPodcast at gmail.com and consider supporting us through Patreon. If you would like to be Bible Bashed personally, then please know that we also offer free biblical counseling, which you can take advantage of by emailing us. Now, Go boldly and obey the truth in the midst of a biblically illiterate world who will be perpetually offended by your every move.